0: CHAPTER sixty seven of History of the Norwegian People, Volume One by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Crusades and Crusaders. In the summer of twelve seventeen, the Fifth Crusade began, and many chieftains from Norway took the cross and went to Palestine. Sigurd Kongsfrande, a nephew of King Sverre, seems to have been the first to depart. He journeyed through Denmark to Germany and joined the army of crusaders which assembled at Spalato under the leadership of King Andrew of Hungary. The army reached the Holy Land, but accomplished nothing of importance, and King Andrew led his forces back to Europe. Erlund Thorbergson and Ruhr kongsfranda another nephew of King Svera, sailed with two ships for Palestine. The saga says, The same summer that the king and the Jarl were in Viken, Ruhr kongsfranda went to Jerusalem. He had a large and beautiful ship. With him went a man by the name of Erlund Thorbrugson, who had another ship, which the townsmen had built at their own expense. Ruar's ship came to Acre, but the townsman's ship reached even Darmat, Damietta in Egypt, and both were successful on this expedition. Ruar and Erlund joined the large fleet collected in Germany, Holland, Denmark, Scandinavia, and England, which sailed from the Netherlands in the spring of 1217. On the way, they stopped in Portugal where they captured the strong castle Alcazar from the Moors. The siege lasted until October, and they spent the winter in Lisbon. The next spring they sailed for the Levant, and joined the crusaders who were operating against Egypt. Damietta was taken in November 1219, after a long siege in which the capture of the chain tower was the most notable event. It is quite certain that the Norsemen played a prominent part in the capture of this stronghold, as they possessed great skill in that kind of warfare. Wilkins says that in order to capture this citadel, a remarkable tower was constructed on two ships. This corresponded to the hunkastali, i.e. Turris Ambulatoria, which the Norsemen were accustomed to construct when they attacked fortified cities. The King's Mirror gives an elaborate account of the weapons and tactics employed in sieges. The father says to his son, When one is to attack a castle with the weapons which have been mentioned, that he also needs to have catapults, volslinger along, both stronger and weaker. The stronger to throw big stones against the walls that they perchance may be made to fall by the great impact, the weaker to throw stones over the walls to destroy the houses within the castle. But if the stone walls cannot be broken down or rent asunder by the catapults, one must try to use a machine called a vedr, i.e. a battering-ram, covered in the end with iron, few stone walls can stand against it. But if the stone walls should not be shaken apart or fall, then one can use, if he wishes, the grafsvin, a musculus constructed of boards and hides to protect the men while they undermine the walls. A tower built on wheels, i.e. turris ambulatoria, is also good to capture a castle with, if it is higher than the one which is to be taken, even if it is only seven L's, but it is better to take the castle with the higher it is. Ladders on wheels, which can be pulled back and forth, well covered with boards below and with railings on both sides, are also good for this use. In short, all weapons are good in the taking of a castle, but one who wishes to take part must know just when to use each weapon. But those who defend a castle may use most of the weapons here mentioned and many others, both big and small catapults, walslinger, hand slings and stave slings, crossbows, losbogie, are also good weapons for them, and likewise all other bows and other weapons to shoot with, lances and Paul's staves, both light and heavy. Against catapults and grafsvin, and against that which is called vedr, battering ram, it is well to strengthen the walls inside with oak timbers, but if there is enough earth or clay, that is the best. Those who defend a castle make also great hurdles, flaky, of big oak branches, and cover the walls with three to five layers of them but these hurdles should be well filled with sticky clay. Against the impact of the battering-ram, they fill big sacks with hay and chaff, and lower them in light iron chains in front of the ram where it would strike the wall. There may be so much shooting that the men cannot stand in the embrasures, vixgard, the then it is well to make hanging embrasures of light hurdles. They should be two L's higher than the real embrasures of the castles, and three L's deeper and they must hang so far from the wall that the men can use all kinds of weapons between the real embrasures of the castle and the hanging ones they must also hang on light beams which they can pull back and shove out again whenever they wish an eagle kotr is also a good weapon for those who are to defend a castle it must be made of big and heavy trees with oak spines along the back like a brush it is fastened outside the walls by the embrasures and it is dropped on those who approach the castle made of long, heavy trees, with sharp teeth of hard oak, are raised on end near the embrasures so that they may be dropped down on the men who approach the castle. A brinklunger, spider, is also a good weapon. It is made of good iron with bent teeth of steel, and on each tooth there is a barb. It must be made so that the ropes which are nearest to it, and higher than a man can reach, should be barbed iron chains so that they can neither cut them nor hold them fast. Above this point, one may use any kind of rope if it is strong enough. Such a contrivance is good to throw down among the men to try to grab some and pull them up. The author mentions several other kinds of weapons, together with hot water and molten glass and lead, which may be thrown upon the besiegers. Also a war machine called skjoljotun, which spews out fire and flames. How this was constructed is not known, but it must have been a machine by which fire and hot objects were hurled at the enemy even in earlier centuries the vikings showed great engineering skill both in constructing and capturing fortified strongholds and the high military science familiar to the author of the king's mirror who wrote his work in Hawk and hawkinson's reign probably in 1250 to 1260 justifies the assumption that the norse crusaders played an important part in the captures of the fortresses at damietta and other places when the Norsemen returned from the crusade is not known, but the saga says that they came home in safety. The lenderman Gaut Jonsen returned from a crusade in 1218, and Ogmund of Sponheim, who made an expedition to the land of the Permians, Old Norse Bjarmaland, and journeyed through Russia by way of Novgorod and the Black Sea, to Constantinople and Palestine, must also have taken part in the Fifth Crusade. Hawken was a statesman of high rank, he showed indeed less originality than his grandfather, King Sverre, but he acted with greater moderation, and managed foreign as well as domestic affairs with such wisdom and firmness that he won for his kingdom high honor and great influence among the powers of Europe. He continued to strengthen his fleet until Norway ranked all nations as a naval power, a circumstance which, together with the king's great reputation as a statesman and ruler, gave his kingdom an influence which can best be seen in the efforts of the crowned heads to gain his friendship he took no part in the struggle between the welfs and the hohenstaufers gulfs and Gibelines, in germany but remained a friend both of the pope and the emperor the throne of germany was considered vacant by the church since the pope had declared emperor frederick to be deposed and the cardinal was empowered by the pope to offer king haakon the imperial crown in honor which Hawkin had wisdom enough to decline. He seems also to have been interested in the crusading movement which was now drawing to a close. At this time the Sixth Crusade to the Holy Land was being prepared by Saint Louis, King of France, as the quarrel between the Pope and the Emperor prevented the organization of a general crusade. Matthew Paris says that Saint Louis invited Hawkin to accompany him on the crusade, and offered him as the powerful and experienced on the sea the command of the whole French fleet louis the sent matthew paris to norway with a letter to the king but Hawkin declined the honor it seems that although Hakon had pledged himself probably in good faith to embark on a crusade to the holy land the pope took no umbrage at his refusal to accompany king louis and it is not strange that the king hesitated to leave his kingdom and to spend his resources in distant lands at a moment when northern europe was threatened by a grave danger at the beginning of the 13th century, the great Tartar conqueror Genghis Khan united the tribes of Central Asia into a great empire. He subjugated China, Turkestan, India, and Persia, and after his death his son Oktai continued the work of conquest and devastation. He sent his nephew Batu Khan to subdue the countries of the west. In 1240, Kiev was sacked, and Russia, Poland, and Hungary were soon overrun by their hordes but at lignitz in silesia their further progress was checked by the germans under henry the pious batu khan returned to asia but europe was in great alarm many fugitives from russia especially permians from the white sea region flocked into the districts on the baltic sea and also into finmarken where king haakon permitted them to settle the relations with the neighboring kingdoms sweden and denmark had not been good since the time of the Ribung Revolt, the king of Sweden had maintained a hostile attitude, but Håkon finally succeeded in effecting a reconciliation. A treaty was concluded between the two kingdoms, and the bond of friendship was further strengthened by the marriage of the Crown prince Håkon to Rikitsa, the daughter of Berger Jarl of Sweden. Denmark had also been unfriendly since the time of Valdemar the victorious, and sharp commercial competition aggravated the situation. For some time, Håkon tried in vain to arrange a peaceful settlement. The growing enmity culminated in open hostilities, and Håkon sailed with a strong fleet to Copenhagen. A more serious clash was averted, however, by timely concessions made by the Danish king, and a treaty of peace was signed in 1257. During these troubles, the crown prince, Håkon the Younger, died, and his brother Magnus succeeded him as heir apparent to the throne in twelve sixty one his marriage to Ingeborg, the daughter of the king of denmark was celebrated at bergen after the wedding festivities king haakon caused magnus to be proclaimed king and the young royal pair were crowned with elaborate ceremonies with england haakon maintained very friendly relations and king alfonso x the wise of castile sought to gain his friendship and support he sent an embassy to Norway to bring about the marriage of Hakon's daughter Christina to his son Don Philip. Christina was escorted to Spain, and the wedding was celebrated at Valladolid. An alliance was formed between the two kings, in which it was stipulated, however, that Hakon should not be asked to aid Castile against England, Sweden, or Denmark, nor should Alfonso X be requested to help Hakon against Aragon or France. King Hawkins's life and reign reflect the high ideals, the Christian character, and true religious sentiment which gave his public acts, and all his measures of social and legal reform, a mark of moderation and good will. He held firmly to the principle that the king was the highest authority in church as well as in state, and placed himself squarely against every attempt to place new restrictions on the royal authority. But he had a high regard for the church. He adopted the measures which it advocated when he found them to be just and beneficial. He dealt conscientiously with all ecclesiastical matters, and it was said to his praise that no king since St. Olaf had done so much to further Christianity in Norway. He accepted in part the plan so long advocated by the clergy regarding the succession. He adhered firmly to the principle that Norway should be an hereditary kingdom, but he recognized the expedience and wisdom of excluding illegitimate sons from the throne. So far as this could be done without endangering the hereditary principle. The new law of succession given at the Frostathing in 1260 makes the provision that the one shall be king of Norway who is the king's oldest legitimate son, Odelborn to Realm and Thanes. But if there is no legitimate son, then the king's son shall be king even if he is not legitimate. And if there is no son, then the one shall be king who is Odelborn, nearest in inheritance, and of the royal family. It was established then by this law that Norway in the future should be an undivided kingdom with a single king. In this succession, preference was given to the king's oldest legitimate son, but in order to preserve the strict principle of an hereditary monarchy, illegitimate sons or other members of the royal family might succeed to the throne. The king retained the old right of legislating for the church, and the code of church laws in the Law was prepared under his supervision. This code was more in harmony with the canon law than the older church laws, and Hawkett enforced it throughout the whole kingdom. The relation between the king and the church was thereby made clear. Since the king could make and amend the laws of the church, and since no ecclesiastical courts existed, but all cases had to be tried in the secular courts where the king's logmen declared and interpreted the laws, the Church of Norway was a state church, subject to the authority of the king and the laws of the realm. King Hawkins' legal reforms and his revision of the old codes of law was a work of the greatest importance. The change which had taken place in social conditions and in the moral and religious spirit of the nation made many of the old laws seem antiquated and even adverse in spirit to the prevailing public sentiment. It seems to have been Hawkins' aim to revise the old laws, both in church and state, so as to bring them into harmony with the more enlightened conception of justice. In 1244, he published an amended edition of the Frostathing Law together with a code of church laws, Christenreth, which seems to have been written by Archbishop Sigurd Andridison of Trondheim with the advice and sanction of the king. In 1260, a new revision of the Frostathing Law appeared together with many new laws placing restrictions on feuds and the execution of personal vengeance. Hitherto, the friends and relatives of a person killed might proceed not only against the slayer himself but against his whole family, and instead of having recourse to legal justice, they often sought satisfaction for the injury by killing a near relative of the slayer. This often led to protracted and bloody feuds, which brought sorrow and suffering in their trail. This evil custom could not be abolished at once, but Hawkin established the principle that the wrongdoer alone could be punished for his crime, a fundamental element of legal justice, which, once recognized, would form a new foundation for criminal jurisprudence. End of chapter 67.